Yeah, that, that's an area where we could really use some help, um, couldn't we? Because uh, it's it's almost, in, well, I, it, I guess these days you really can't get a branded or a commercially made antiviral anymore. Like we used to at times, they would come and go, right? And now they all have to be compounded. So that's not good. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. I was just, just on the verge of saying hello. We've, and this is we've, the Purr Podcast. <laughs> we've got to get the hand signals right or something. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> one means I start, two means you start. Does? Or we can do one mean you start, two means I start. How okay, okay, because I didn't get that memo and I didn't really understand your hand signals. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but of course this- oh, Well, and, and who, who is speaking? <laughs> so this is Dr. Susan Little, who probably for um, the hundredth time over, out of 130 podcasts has flubbed the opening. <laughs> so, I yeah. think it's a signature thing now. <laughs> well, um, yeah. We cannot start this podcast without messing the intro up. There's very few, like we had a couple of episodes we had ago, we had a very smooth intro, I have to mm -hmm. say. Yeah, I'm going to remember yeah. that one for a long time. Yes. Um, so uh, waiting in the wings, as it were, is uh, Dr. Christine Lim, a veterinary ophthalmologist who's back with us again um, this week and who's wondering who these two crazy people are, I'm sure. Not at all. This is what happens when, when you do a podcast for a long time. This is what happens. Cat <laughs> people. Yes, true. true. I guess we're used to cat people being a you know a little different. That's a good yes. way to put it. Yep. Yes. So we ended with a cliffhanger uh, last week, and that was my question about you know I always feel really bad after amputations because it's the the end. You know you can't put a leg back, uh, and so I always feel really really bad because I feel kind of that I failed. So I wanted mm -hmm. to ask the same question of Christine or to Christine that to see if she felt the same way if you know we only have two eyes and taking one eye I have at least four legs you know but taking one eye then you only have 50% left and if you take two eyes the animal's blind so Christine what is your, what is your feeling it's a complicated answer um I think a lot of our patients come in with such advanced disease and they're quite painful um, and if you have an eye that's blind and painful, then I do feel like the most humane thing is to remove the eye. I feel like if you're just trying to do drops to keep an eye to look at, oftentimes the pet has chronic discomfort um, and we don't want that. Um, so I, I do feel good about cases where I can make someone feel better, especially when a pet owner comes back and talks about how they didn't realize. Right. Um, but now my pet is interacting more, eating better, more playful. I thought he was just getting old. Um, it, I mean, it does make me sad that by the time we see these patients, enucleation is often the only option because I like to fix things. It, it is quite, you know, it does feel like giving up or losing. Like it, it is nice to be able to fix something and see it get better and have someone live with vision because mm. better with vision. I think that that's something that we hear in, in feline medicine um, a lot, like in all of the disciplines that 
owners are often unaware of kind of how bad the cat felt until you fix the teeth or fix the eye or, you know, whatever it is, right? Fix the arthritis. Yeah. And then they see the behavior change in the, in the cat. So, so you, you said that often um, patients are more advanced than you would like um, yeah. by the time they come to you. And of course, you know, our, our cats don't go to the ophthalmologist regularly. Uh, I, you know, in people it's driven, of course, by the need to see <laughs> for lots of reasons, but pets don't get that. So I, I'm, so that's probably one reason, but what are the other reasons that you, that you would attribute to them being more advanced in disease than, than we would like? Um, I think cats, especially more than dogs, are very good at hiding any mm -hmm. sign of discomfort. Um, and eye pain often does not manifest as anything very obvious. So a lot of the times there's no report of any kind of rubbing at the eye. Um, and mm -hmm. if you have a headache, if you think about how you are with a headache, you're still going to work. You're still seeing all your patients. You're still cooking dinner for your family. So you're doing everything that's normal. And maybe you just won't want to converse as much at the dinner table. So they're behaving normally um, and there's no sign that anything's wrong. Um, inflammation inside the eye can be really hard to see externally until it's manifests as secondary glaucoma and the eye is twice as big as the other one. And by then it's mm. late. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it that it's, it's so, it's kind of, it's not so obvious, you know, the problems are, are more hidden. And I, I also think we still have a lot of vets and I'm one of them who aren't as comfortable you know, looking at eyes and, and mm. especially like looking at retinas and, you know, we'll, we will look at corneas obviously, but like beyond that, right. I, I think we still need to work harder to get vets comfortable with that. I mean, I'll throw in then that you should buy my book because it has pictures in there so that Yay. if you're not comfortable with what you're seeing, you can just go to the picture second and section and say, Hey, this looks like what I'm seeing. And then flip to the guide section. And, and Christine, okay. tell us a little bit about that book. So yeah. when did, when did you publish it and where can people find it? Um, probably Amazon's the best place. Um, <laughs> it was published in 2015 and I'm working on the second edition now that I have to submit in a couple of months. Um, it's called Small Animal Ophthalmic Atlas and Guide. And the idea was that when I was in practice and not necessarily familiar, and I only had 15 minutes to figure things out, if I wasn't sure of my diagnosis, I kind of wish that I could confirm it somehow and then figure out a plan without flipping through these big textbooks. Um, so it's arranged with the first half being just a whole bunch of pictures, pictures of corneal pathologies, pictures of anterior uveal pathologies, et cetera. You can look at the pictures and hopefully help feel better about what you are looking at and then flip to the second half, which is, okay, this is a corneal sequestration. This is what you do. It's I not, think that's great. Yeah. 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 How to get through your appointment. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. We'll put a link to your book in our show notes on our, our website too, to help people find it um, easier. Um, I, I, you know, I, I've, uh, Yola and I've both been veterinarians for a long time and, um, now it, Yola's rolling his eyes at me <laughs> and now, nowadays though, when I'm thinking of looking at I the posterior, where this is going, 
sorry. Oh, <laughs> and these days when I'm thinking of like looking at retinas, because I, um, we look at retinas a lot in our practice. We try to do it routinely awesome. um, in cats. And so I, you know, I talk about that in my lectures, but now at least you've got some devices that make it easier for you to routinely look at retinas. Okay. So I'm old enough that it wasn't always so easy, right? You had to learn the hand lens bit. And, um, and I think, you know, people struggled with that, but now we've got devices like the panoptic um, ophthalmoscope. What do you use? We use the panoptic. You use that routinely? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. use that for just for, um, because, because we can do um, quicker and easier. That way, most cats get at least some retinal exam instead of them getting nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, we also and have a retinal camera. So we can, uh, we, you know, we can do get a better look in a dilated eye with, uh, with our retinal camera if we, if we need to. Yeah. And then you can send photos and yeah, have, you know, yeah. yeah, I think it's, see our tools are the most yes. fun. Part. That's it. That's it. So, and, and, and your book sounds like a cookbook. So uh, you, you, you look at the recipe and then you have to follow the page to how to make the recipe. So just to get you through that whole Yeah. That's it. Long-term. Yeah. It, it, it it's not about like everything about a disease or how to manage it long-term, but just to yeah. sort of start initial management until you can refer yeah. or look up more, et cetera. I think that's a great idea. Cause that's like, that's us in the middle of an appointment, right? You're like, Oh goodness. Like, what do I, what is this? What do I do that? So it's a lot of pattern recognition too, I imagine. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So there are multiple examples of each kind of thing. To kind I of do want to stress the fact that for these kind of diseases, uh, because the eye, you know, so sensitive is so important. I, I, I think there is a point of no return and you need to be before that and you need to refer these cases in yeah. time. So you don't fuss with them too much yourself if you don't know what you're doing, preferably referring, like I said, you only have two eyes and you don't yeah. want to mess them up that much. So, yeah. so how do you, what, what, where is the border of what a general practitioner normally does and when you get involved, Christine? I think that varies a lot on the practitioner's comfort level. Um, when so I I, um, I taught at Minnesota University of Minnesota for um, I don't know seven years or so, and I taught vet students on how to manage deep ulcers, melting ulcers, um, not how to do a conjunctival graft, but how to manage those medically on what situations should be referred for surgery. They learned um, how to do enucleations how to um, cryotherapy for dystichia. Um, so I, and grid keratotomies for um, indolent ulcers. So I feel like if you're comfortable, you are capable of a lot. I think if you're not comfortable because you only see one case a year, then maybe it's not a good idea to just try something right. complicated. Right, <clears throat> but there is a fair bit you can do with the, the interest yeah. in enough cases. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know what you do in your practice if you have an enucleation. For example, here in Chicago, we get a lot of referrals just for enucleation. Wow. Whereas really? a lot of GPs didn't. So yeah, I see a big range. Yeah, well, that's your favorite technique there then. Oh, good so. question. Favorite technique? Um, transconjunctival, um, because I can have a shorter surgery, so shorter anesthetic time. And um yeah, get in, get out, and and have less bleeding and all that kind of stuff. There are times I have to do a different technique, but. And for people that have no clue what you're talking about, what do you mean? <laughs> hmm, how do I describe like Susan? <laughs> Just kidding, Susan. <laughs> right, he's not. 
Do you do them? So I, I don't, but because um, as Yola will be quick to tell anybody, I'm not much of a surgeon, okay. um, but we do have um, a vet in our practice that, yeah, because I, I think traditionally that was very much a GP um, surgery. I think traditionally it was, and it yeah. seems to be not so much these days as it, as it used to be. Oh. But, but I think that also just reflects that, you know, um, now, now it's easier in many places in Canada and the U S to refer to an ophthalmologist, whereas, you know, a couple of decades ago, not so much. And so, especially in some parts of Canada that are fairly, um, you know, don't uh, traditionally, and even still today don't have great access to veterinary specialists. GPs do a lot. And that would have been a, a, a very GP. Yeah. Technique. Yeah. Ottawa now has more than it had for many, many years. It was just Dr. Tinsley and now yes. we've got a couple more, which yes. is nice. Yeah, so but, but that's only recently, right? So we've had yeah. one ophthalmologist for a long time. So so there's still areas, I, I think, where there isn't great support for referral Dr. Susan has a crazy spay technique, so. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yola, does, Yola does not want, Yola's still amazed at, at our last podcast episode, we discussed my spay technique, so. Yola is still not over it yet. So anyway, so no, getting I'm back to trying the, to process this, getting back to the enucleation <laughs> surgery um, from the time I was uh, first in practice, I've never done one, but I've always seen people do them. And I don't know what the name of the technique is, but it's like everything comes out at once type of okay. job, right? So what's the right name for that? And what am I talking about? <laughs> You might be talking about transpalpebral where yes, you, I am. Like, yes. okay, you sew up the eyelids and then you, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's really good if you've got like an infection on the cornea and you don't want to expose the tissues to the corneal infection or if you have a tumor. Um, and it also makes sure that you get everything out, like third eyelid conjunctiva, things that can secrete afterwards and cause a cyst. Um, with the con transconjunctival technique, you have to go make sure you go back and take all those glands out after the eye. Um, so I think you're talking about transpalpebral, yes. transconjunctival, you leave the eyelid open and what you do is you dissect through the conjunctiva and you dissect against the globe okay. to get the eye out first. Right. And then you take out third eyelid, remaining conjunctiva and eyelids and sew it up. Okay. Um, and for me, that has less bleeding and I can do it faster. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's less traumatic for my patients when I do it that way. Um, and in cats in general, you have more so than dogs. Um, that's kind of nice. And it's nice to have less handling because they're at higher risk of optic nerve trauma than a dog, for example, okay. that cause blindness in the fellow eye. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And you already answered my next question is uh, why do you do it? And, and I love the fact that Dr. Susan described her technique as just, you know, chopping the whole eye out. That, <laughs> everything that was out. then the, yes, the, it's the, not my the technique. everything out. Dr. <laughs> Susan, chop your eye out. But uh, no, so so the the less bleeding, faster, less traumatic is are really the three reasons yeah. why you do your technique, and that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and especially yeah. in a cat because probably the space that you have is a little less too. And so you know this this probably will allow you to have a little bit better view. And 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 then the other question I have for you is that most ophthalmologists use. Uh, magnification for everything they do and yeah. and that's really different from a lot of other surgeries as a matter of fact when I got older I used more magnification yeah. because yeah. it was much more comfortable uh, but is there any surgery that you do without magnification enucleations um, oh you do without yeah um, and let me see 
That might be the only one because everything else is corneal or intraocular. Um, but I have noticed it's harder to see things like doing a nasal lacrimal duct flush is it's harder to see the puncta now that I'm mm -hmm. in the 40s. Yes, happens that, that happens. Yeah. yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah. Well. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the good news of cataract surgery is often that your eye vision suddenly gets better because of the lens that they put in. Um, yep. And uh, so, okay, so let's go back to the cats. What is your most frustrating disease in the cats? Ooh, good one. Uh, probably the chronic conjunctivitis corneal ulcer cats yeah. where I provide several different antivirals and I can't get the ulcer to heal or I can't get the conjunctivitis or keratitis to go away. Yeah. Yeah. They can be very, very stubborn. Um, yeah. So that kind of, that kind of leads us to herpes virus, doesn't it? Which is such a big deal in uh, ophthalmology for cats. Yes. Um, I, yeah. Where to start with that? I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like where to start it. Um, I, I think that herpes virus probably causes more pathology to feline eyes than, than maybe a lot of us are familiar with, right. We tend to think of it as just it, you know, it'll cause conjunctivitis or it'll cause an ulcer, but I think it can cause some, some other, some fairly bad things um, too. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the classic is if you have a kitten, those little barn kittens that got the upper respiratory disease yes. and their eyes, lids are swollen shut and yes. there's all this discharge coming out and then that's self-limiting. Um, and then for the adults who experience recurrent disease, it can look like anything. Mm. It can just be conjunctivitis. It can just be an ulcer. It can be an ulcer plus conjunctivitis um, and herpes causes dermatitis too. So you could have eyelid. Yep issues. Um, yep. I think the, the smushy face cats, their exposure already predisposes them to corneal sequestrum development, but herpetic ulcers, that's a form of chronic trauma. And so that can lead to sequestrum development. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of chronic pain. Pretty um, varied. Yeah. Um, eosinophilic keratitis. Mm -hmm. So is there a herpes association with that disease? There is, but I don't think we necessarily know exactly because yeah. um, you can isolate herpes from a percentage of those cats, but not yeah. all of the cats. And right. it may be that it's an immune, we think it's an immune system overreaction to herpes. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the, 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 uh, the gingivitis stomatitis as an overreaction to Khaleesi virus and other pathogens. I think cats are good at that, right? They're good at kind of overreacting to, yes. uh, <laughs> to things. So what's your number one drug for treating, let's say, um, herpes, uh, conjunctivitis and keratitis, you know, mild. So yeah. What would mild. you go for? Um, probably a topical antiviral. Um, and most people have things to do, so they cannot do a lot of, yeah. um, cytopavir. So all the, um, all the antiviral eye drops need to be compounded. So you can get cytopavir yes. compounded and that's only a twice a day dosing, whereas things like idoxyuridine are way more frequent. So most yes. people pick twice a day eye drop. And the famcyclovir tablets I like, but probably not for something mild. Right. Um, and there's humongous, so people have difficulty getting it. Yeah, that, that's an area where we could really use some help, um, couldn't we? Because uh, it's it's almost, in, well, it, I guess these days you really can't get a branded or a commercially made antiviral anymore. Like we used to at times they would come and go. Right. And now they all have to be compounded. So that's not good. And we don't have a, 
there's not a fam cycle there formulation that you know doesn't look bigger than the cat so <laughs> they look so big it works really well <laughs> it does it does i know and um uh yeah so it, it that so that has been really helpful right the and also cats can the the cats that have really chronic problems can of course stay on it for a long time too it's like doesn't have to be a time limited so that's helpful and it and the cytovir is definitely good definitely in advance um, twice a day dosing, I think is very yeah. helpful. Have you tried gancyclovir as a compounded drop? It is, and um, it is showing promise. Um, I don't remember exactly the frequency. Right. And there's, um, that might be the one where I recently looked it up. It's different in Canada versus the US, obviously. Oh, but I, okay. I think gancyclovir is the one where I recently looked up and it was something like $400 a tube. Whoa. Um, wow which most, then nobody's going to use it. Gosh, crazy, huh? Yep. yep. Just crazy. Yes. Herpes virus, the, the, uh, the curse of, uh, of feline ophthalmology, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yola has been very quiet because we're talking yeah, about medicine. There, there's a tram right now here. So I tried to mute oh. the sound. Do you hear a lot of background noise right now? No, I don't hear your tram. Oh, oh, good, good, good. Yeah. So then, then I can talk because I feel really bad that that sound of this, tr the crazy tram that's driving here is coming. In, back in your back. hotel in Hawaii. My hotel in Hawaii. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so um, I just want to talk a little bit about about those those melting ulcers. Mm. They sound really bad, and mm -hmm. it sounds really painful. Yeah. Uh, so, what is the current therapy protocol for those right now? Um, I like to get a sample. Uh, so first numb the eye with topical propericane. Um, and then I do like to get corneal swabs for culture sensitivity and cytology. Um, and I think you should do both because your culture is not always positive. Um, and then you might see the bugs on cytology and get an idea of what you're dealing with. But before you get the um, culture results back, since we know it takes a few days, I tend to start um, a broad spectrum, like a fluoroquinolone. Um, and I also start serum for the anti-collagenase. Um, and I do those once every one to two hours during waking hours for a couple of days. Um, and then down to every, every six hours or so. And then I, I'll add e-collar. Um, sometimes I'll do artificial tears, but every one to two hours, nobody really wants to do an extra drop. Um, and then something like gabapentin or buprenorphine to try to help decrease the discomfort um, mm -hmm. or benefoxib. Yeah. And you said every two hours, uh, yeah. that, and what about at night? Do I have to get up every two hours as an owner then? I tell people to go to sleep because it's stressful <laughs> for them. <laughs> well, you can't do the day thank shift. You. Thank you, thank you. Thank right, you, if you doctor. haven't slept, who's gonna do the day shift? Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and, you're just trying to like stop the melt, stop this infection from spreading, and then once you've done that, you can go back down. Yeah, yeah. So those those are pretty scary, um, and it it is really hard for owners to cope with the you know with the every hour, every two hour administration of stuff. But it's you know it's just the nature of the of the situation, isn't it? We just don't keep um, cornea levels, I guess, of uh, the drugs for very long. And we're just, like I said, if it's very aggressive and it's visibly mm -hmm. making the cornea melt away, we just yeah. have to be aggressive or else it's, it's going to progress. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty scary situation. So do you, do you see very many of those in cats? I think of them a little bit more of, as, uh, of them more as a dog thing, but. It does happen more yeah. in dogs. Um, we see it in cats, but just 
not on a routine basis, not yeah. as compared to just conjunctivitis, keratitis. Yeah. 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 So corneal sequestrum or sequestra, I guess, sequestra, plural in cats. Yeah. So what, what, uh, what's your approach to those? Um, it's something where if it is, if it has a lot of vascularization, I might right. try initial medical management. It's so they're always ulcerated. Yeah. So I'll try initial medical management with topical antibiotics and some pain medications and give it a little time to see if it sloughs on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often don't, and I don't yeah. want somebody in pain for a long time. So we do discuss trying to remove them. If they're not very thick, you can use the diamond burr um, to try to um, grind them out of the cornea. But if they're thick, that's not going to get it all. Um, and then you have to do a keratectomy. That gets into an extra expense that most people don't want to do. So even though you ideally remove them, a lot of cases you end up mm-hmm. having approach them medically. Yeah. Because you always get a new sequestrum if they invest thousands of dollars in a removal. Yeah. So what do you think is so, driving those? That's a that's another sort of really peculiar feline thing, I think. Chronic corneal trauma. So yeah. whether you're um, yeah. a Persian who never closes her eye right, right. or you have a herpetic ulcer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you start talking about diamond burrs and cutting yes. off part of the cornea, that's when I get squeamish, you know, like, <laughs> ooh, a diamond burr in my eye, but are you, obviously think, they're under anesthesia. I, you're thinking I of dental that. drills, probably. I know, you it know does. Yeah, it does. So it, it's <laughs> like this, you know, and, and I have one more crazy question for you. So what is the procedure you least like to do? Oh, good question. Hmm. Um, I like eye surgery. So I think eyelids are probably, or third mm-hmm. eyelids, I don't like as much. Right. Ooh, those beautiful, you know, reconstruction techniques that you can do on eyelids. They're so yeah, cool. you know, I like the eye. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't get to do the reconstruction if Christine can't save the eye. <laughs> and I do not like, like those pedicle grafts or the what is it caudal auricular yeah advancement um, grafts yeah. the flaps no. oh flaps, no. christine now you're hurting <laughs> my feelings now you're hurting my feelings i think just surgery for that <laughs> oh well you know you you make me think of um of uh entropion and other and and um you know eyelash type problems that Cats actually, uh, they don't get it as often as dogs, but they get yeah. those problems, right? And so if there's any eye surgery that I like doing, um, yeah. I, I, don't mind, I don't mind doing entropians. I don't mind like little fiddly surgeries. I'm fine right. with that, right? Yeah. And so we've, 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 I've treated any number of those over the years and they're not always like a, a pedigree cat. They can be just a street cat oh, yeah. seen with those occasionally. Yep. Yeah, but they're very rewarding to treat, I think, because then, you know, you go from this poor, like weepy eyed, you know, uncomfortable kitty and within a day or so of surgery and the swelling's going down, he's like, I can see. (laughs) And the owners have seen the eyes for the first time. First time. It's really rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So Christine, what are some tips there? What, what, what do you tell? Because that's, I think also a, a surgery that's done in private practice quite a lot. So yeah. more people are comfortable with it. So what are your, your technique tips there? Um, for entropian, uh, I think a lot of times if they have an ulcer or the entropian is 
rubbing enough that their eye is painful, they'll squint and then make the entropion seem like more than it is. is right. Um, so it's nice to evaluate their faces when they're awake and they have the normal muscle tone. But I like to put um, a drop of preparacaine on the eye so that the eye pain is gone and then the spastic part of the entropion is gone. Mm -hmm. um, compare it to the other side of the face. Yeah. And after I, I, I do kind of do this, just to kind of see yeah, how like much pinch the skin a bit and see what it does. Yeah. Because yeah, you don't want to overcorrect, right? And I, I think it'd be easy to do if you're not quite careful. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to make things go back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably better if you're unsure to undercorrect because you can always take a little more off. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and it's something I like to warn people about that it's better mm. to do it that way than. Yeah. Way. Yeah, because we'll just create a whole new problem, right? If we if we uh, overcorrect, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one who's there, like pinching skin and, and yeah. trying to figure out, right? Is is this enough? Is it too much? Yeah, yeah. But well, I guess a, in in, in oh. cats you don't see ectropion that much. It's mainly entropion, I bet. Mainly, I mean, you could see ectropion after maybe a really bad keratoconjunctivitis causing scar tissue mm. um, or eyelid lacerations that didn't heal quite right. Um, but you're right, we see entropion more often. You can do um, beautiful Z-plasties there. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna mention for these really old cats, like your 20 year old, really skinny cat who's, whose eyes have fallen back and yes. they because of that, you don't wanna do surgery. They now have the dermal filler. You Have you heard of those? Oh, for oh no way. Is really? that the same stuff that they use for people? Yeah, and then you can just inject it and it kind of unrolls the eyelid when you plump up the eyelids. No um, kidding. Okay, so now I'm so waiting for people that go to the vet and say, can you plump up yeah. the lips, lips, my, my cat a little oh, what bit? What a great oh. idea. <laughs> it's, it's nice for those really old ones where you just- sure. They don't want to do certain, and their pet owners don't want to do surgery because they're worried about their 20 year old sure. anesthesia. Wow. So that's plastic nice. surgery. Of, right yeah. now, the trade name, but yeah, we just yeah. do a little injection like this. Yeah. It doesn't last forever, six to 12 months on average, Oof. but you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And would you do that? Like, um, so I know uh, when puppies have, I hate, uh, sorry, I, I don't mean to segue into, into dogs too much. I guess we could apply to cats, but, um, you might do that in puppies, I'm thinking, until they're older for a permanent repair, or would you just do, go right to surgery with puppies? Um, kittens, even, let's say. Depends. So um, with some puppies, if there's a bad entropy and you can correct early, and um, sometimes that's fine, even though yeah. they're young, um, I'll sometimes put a tacking suture, a temporary, like a nylon suture to evert their eyelids. And mm -hmm. I have- Oh, true. Any mm -hmm. of those. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. See, it's coming back to me now. I'm remembering some vet school stuff. Yeah. I know, I know it sounds like it, but uh, once again, I have to be the bearer of bad news because we're at 25 minutes again and it really? goes so fast. And I have so many more questions for Christine. So yeah. yeah. We'll have Same to, we'll time. have to invite you back, Christine. Yes. This been has fun. been so much fun. Yeah. Um, and fun. I feel a little bit more comfortable about ice again. Okay. <laughs> no, especially the internal eyes although i'm still disappointed about the plastic surgery part so although i love the filler thing that's really more cool. for you to do yeah. so do you also use botox uh, i do not use botox but you can yes oh, goodness various yeah see you can use every and then you can take everything with you at home and uh, no you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> but uh <laughs> oh yola I know. my goodness oh well. but this has been wonderful christine thank you so much for yes having me this, a lot of fun. 
great two episodes that we have had. And Dr. Susan, would you like to end the ep uh, this episode? I, I get to do the wrap up today, do I? Mm -hmm. Well, then that's I'll do my best at the wrap up. Yes. Yeah, so I want to thank Dr. Lim for being with us as well. And uh, we will post in our show notes a link to her uh, ophthalmology textbook, which sounds wonderful because it's full of pictures. <clears throat> and I just want to um, author to or editor to editor, just, you know, extend my sympathy to you on what it's like to try to get another textbook. Oh, born. gosh, yes. Yes. But, and Yola, too. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're almost there, right? We're, we're almost have... there. We're getting there. Yes. It really yeah. is like yes. it's much worse than having kids. That's all I can say. So, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm so happy that I published mine. Yes. So it's done. It's uh, done. Yay. Yola self-published, which I'm thinking is a good option. So. Better way to go. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so we need to wrap up um, this uh, episode, sadly. Um, so if you are enjoying this podcast, then we do have a lot of others. So go to our website at perpodcast.net and you can see all of our episodes. You can listen directly on the website or you can listen in any podcast app um, that you use for other podcasts. Uh, and we're also pretty active on social media, so you can keep up with what's happening on our podcast on most social media platforms with the handle, Yola, of? At per podcast. <laughs> I thought for a minute you weren't going to jump in there. Okay, yay! <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I did it, I did it. Yeah, I can always blame the internet, so if, if you don't care. <laughs> and that's but, it uh, for this one. Yes, thank you, Christine. Thank yeah. you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 